Who's in? And that group text is typically sent from some friend, somebody who's leading and organizing a basketball team. And they're asking every member of that basketball team, who's in this week? I don't know about you, I'm not a big fan of group texts. Okay, so I, a little life hack if you don't know, if you have an iPhone or something like that that's smarter than a normal dumb phone, you know, then you can probably silence group texts. It's a lifesaver. If I'm in a meeting or something, I don't want like buzz, 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 and all these guys saying, I'm in, Uh, I'm in. Hey, I'm in, I'm out, I'm not in, you know, etc. And so I'd prefer my phone not to be going off all the time, and so I just silence group texts. So if you ever group text me, I immediately silence it. And if I don't respond right away, then now you know why, because it's been silenced. And uh, I say that because after a little while, if I've not responded in a while, then the guy that's leading it, oftentimes he might text me in particular, and then he'll ask, Phil, are you in? And that's how I would summarize Matthew 11 and 12. So far in Matthew's chapter 1 through 10, we've heard about Jesus, and Matthew 11 and 12 is a series of stories and explanations about Jesus, and it's telling us how people responded to him, and it's asking, who's in? And as we read these stories, we find some people aren't in, and some people are. But the whole point is to ask the question directly to you. If you've not responded yet, in Matthew 11 and 12, then this week should be the question where we ask, are you in? Right to you, right to your own heart. And that's what I want you to be thinking about as we read this text. We're going to look at this section in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, and see if you can notice who's in and who's not in, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
At first glance, it might seem, how in the world do these stories come together? And I'm going to suggest, as I already did, that they come together by that question, who's in? And on the slide behind me, you should see the four responses I think we see of who's in. Those who repent, those who listen, those who are filled, and those who do his will. You should notice if you're reading your Bibles that as verse 38 begins, we see scribes and Pharisees. Then Jesus is still talking in verse 43 when the unclean spirit has gone out. It's not like he stops talking. He's still giving his response. These stories are interrelated. Then look at verse 46. It says, now while he was still speaking to the people, this is one unit of thought. And so therefore we want to take it as one. And this is my best shot of trying to help you see that it's responses to Jesus We find out who's really in with Jesus, and first we're going to see it's those who repent. Those who repent. Let's start first with this first section about the sign of Jonah. Starting in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus responds by saying, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, I don't think... It would be wrong if you had the same thought I had at first when I first read this text years ago. Be like, man, what's Jesus' deal? He seems a little grumpy here. I mean, they're just asking for a sign. He's saying, that's evil. You adulterers. Like, what in the world does adultery have to do with seeking a sign? Like, there's some strangeness to the Bible. And I want to just kind of acknowledge that on the surface if you're reading it and think, I don't get what the big deal is. Shouldn't people have evidence and proof that Jesus is really sent from God? Like, give him a break, Jesus. Well, there's a big problem with this question. And it's not the same question if you and I are a skeptic and we're doubting and we have questions about Jesus. Let me give you, very quickly, the reasons why this question is a problem. Problem number one. They call him teacher. Now, this is review. We covered this, actually, when we were going through Matthew chapter 8. It was the first time we saw someone call Jesus a teacher. In Matthew 8, 19, a scribe said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Look, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Also seems a little strange. Like, why doesn't he just say, All right, come follow me? Because the guy called him teacher. You're thinking, what's wrong with that? Jesus is a teacher. He is a teacher in that sense. But every time in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is called a teacher. It's from an outsider. It's from a skeptic. It's from somebody who's not genuinely a skeptic, but rather somebody who is trying to accuse or put Jesus in a trap. Matthew 12, 38, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, right here in our text, they say, teacher, we want to see a sign. Matthew 19, 16, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler, do you remember that story? Matthew twenty two fifteen. some Pharisees went to trap Jesus and they said, teacher. There was only one person in all of the Gospel of Matthew who you could say was an insider to Jesus and called Jesus a teacher. That story is found in Matthew 26 as Jesus and his disciples are sitting around a table in a large upper room and they're having a last meal before Jesus dies. Maybe you remember the scene if you've read the Bible before. Picture that scene. All around the table, they start calling him Lord, Master, Lord, Master. Everyone around the table, except one. Judas calls him Rabbi or Teacher. Problem number one is, they call him a teacher. He's not a teacher. He's the Lord. He's the master. Problem number two, they're demanding a sign. They're not just seeking a sign because they have intellectual curiosities. 
Who was the last person who demanded a sign from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Think about it. Matthew chapter 4, Satan. So no wonder Jesus is calling them evil and adulterous. The tempter came and said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Or later, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down and angels should come and save you. And Jesus says, No, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. No wonder why Jesus called these Pharisees. Look at chapter 12, verse 34, right on your page. 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers. A brood is a bunch of baby animals after they've been hatched or born. You're a bunch of baby snakes. Why does he call them baby snakes? Because they're acting like their father, who is the devil. As Jesus says in John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil. Problem number two, they're demanding a sign just like Satan. Problem number three, Jesus knows they want to kill him. Look at our same text right here on your page, chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy or literally to kill him. These men who are asking for a sign are not doubting and saying, Oh Lord, I'm just struggling here. Like, I believe, I want to believe, but could you just help my unbelief and show me who you really are? That's not what's going on here. These people want to kill Jesus. Imagine somebody wants to kill you. Better yet, not just one person, an entire organization, a whole group, a posse of people want to kill you. And then they show up to church today and they say, hey, how you doing? Can I sit next to you at lunch today? <coughs> would you think that it would be inoff- like offensive or wrong if any of us had that situation? Somebody's out to get you and you're like, that's, that's not genuine. No, 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 you're not sitting next to me. I'm running away. I'm not going to lunch today if you're going to be there. (coughs) If that seems natural to you that you might respond that way, consider that circumstance, remember the circumstance of Jesus. People are out to plot and kill his life. And it says in verse 15, oh, he's well aware of this, that they were wanting to kill him. So when they resurface again, they're demanding a sign. And he says, yeah, no, evil adulterous generation. Those are the people who seek signs. That's problem number three. Problem number four, the last and final problem with this question, is that they have already seen signs. Remember last week's passage? Look at verse 22. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and they healed, Jesus healed him. And then all the people were amazed. They thought, man, maybe this guy's like a greater David who casts out evil spirits. But the Pharisees, They heard this and said, no, this is from the prince of demons that he cast out demons. It's not that they needed a sign because they haven't seen a sign. They have seen a sign. In other words, they have every reason to believe and respond with repentance. Therefore, this is a good question for you and for me. Has Jesus given you enough reasons to repent and believe? Or are you like these people, demanding more? There's a big difference between having honest questions about the Bible or God or faith and somebody who is like these Pharisees. And God has shown them plenty. God has given them evidence after evidence and time and time again. We should not read this story and conclude, well, the Christian faith is just anti-intellectual and there should be no good reasons to believe. And so therefore, it's just a leap of faith into the dark. 
No, there is evidence, and faith is not a blind leap into the dark. However, it is not a good sign. If you're the kind of person that is always seeking for a sign, we do not need signs and omens and chills down our back and special feelings to make decisions, just like these scribes and Pharisees. We have all that we need right in front of us in God's word through Jesus Christ. So when they are demanding a sign, Jesus responds, you are an evil, an adulterous generation for seeking this sign. Now, why does he use these words? Evil and adulterous generation. It is because adultery connects us to the idea of marriage, and Israel, the people of Israel, are the bride of God all through the Old Testament. They're called to be the faithful bride to the husband, Yahweh. More specifically, Jesus seems to be alluding to Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. The only two places where evil and adulterous appear in the Old Testament. In this context, it's to Gomer. Jesus is echoing Hosea and comparing the Jews of his generation with the generation of the exiles who sold out and left Yahweh for other gods. Here's what Hosea 3.1 says. Go again, love a woman who has loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So by asking for this sign, Jesus is implying that these scribes and Pharisees are betraying their great love for God. And they're pursuing false gods. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the husband. By them demanding a sign, it is like they are rejecting their bride, their bridegroom, their husband. And therefore, Jesus is thinking about the exile, and that is why I think he brings up Jonah, because he's thinking exile, he's thinking Hosea 3.1. Therefore, a prophet during the exile was Jonah. And so he says, no sign will be given to you all, you generation, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something is greater than Jonah. It is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says that he will give them a sign. First he calls them evil and adulterous. And then he says, I will give you a sign. I will give you the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? And I think in order to understand the sign of Jonah, we can look specifically at these words about being in the ground for three days and three nights, and that be the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I think that's only half of the sign. To see the full scope of this sign, we need to remember the whole story of Jonah, not merely the famous parts about Jonah being swallowed by the big fish. Jonah was sent by God to preach to the city of Nineveh, and he initially refused to go. That's all of chapter 1. When you read it, you should notice a pattern of him going down, 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 eventually into the ocean, the waters. Now, why did he refuse? And that's the big question. If you read chapter 4, you'll notice it's because he knew that God would be gracious and that they would respond with faith and repentance, and he did not want that to happen. Now, why didn't he want Nineveh, to respond with repentance. Now, on the surface, you could say, 
Because Ninevites were the enemies of God's people? Well, that's an easy answer. If you're well known for human trafficking against a certain group of people ethnically, then you might have a little bit of prejudice against them, a lack of love. You might think, no, no, I don't want them to have God's favor. But I think it goes deeper than that. Deeper than just prejudice. Deeper than just ethnocentric racism. Jonah did not want the promise of Deuteronomy 32 to come true. Because Deuteronomy 32 says, anytime my people do not obey me, I will leave them and go to the other nations. What state are we in? What time period? We are in the exile. The exile is the time of the period of the people that left God and pursued other gods. So God, by sending Jonah to Nineveh, is showing Israel has forsaken Yahweh. Israel is being judged and condemned by the call of Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah wants none of it. It is a sign of jealousy. Here's the words from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Could you get much more foolish than the people of Nineveh? Any more barbaric? Any more evil? Any more the enemies of God at the time of Jonah? No, you couldn't. So the fact that he would send Jonah to them is showing, oh no, Deuteronomy 32 has come true. They have committed adultery. The people of Israel have committed adultery. Therefore, God is is kind of like giving the divorce papers and saying, fine, I'm going to get remarried to the Ninevites. Jonah knew that Israel was faithless. And therefore, he was being sent to a foolish nation. And this was judgment upon his people. He didn't like that. So he went the opposite way. Why is that relevant to our text? And the greater sign of Jonah? Because when Jonah appeared after being vomited out onto the beach, he preached five words in the Hebrew. Five-word sermon. Some of you are thinking, that would be the coolest sermon ever, Pastor Phil. When are you going to preach a five-word sermon? I don't know. I'm still working on it. Here was his sermon. Repent, or in 40 days, you'll be destroyed. Could you imagine that kind of mic drop sermon? I get up here and say, repent, or in 40 days, fire's going to fall down, you're all going to die. All right, let's go sit, sit down. You know, like, that's Jonah's sermon. And then it says that in response to this sermon, all of the people of Nineveh, from the highest of high, the king, all the way down to the animals, They fasted and prayed and turned to God. All of them. It was revival. This was powerful preaching. The Ninevites received Jonah's preaching. Though he preached with no signs and wonders other than being thrown up by fish. And so the Ninevites showed that they were more worthy of the kingdom than the nation of Israel. Therefore, the sign of Jonah includes success to a mission to the Gentiles, which is exactly why I think Jesus is talking about this to Pharisees and scribes. Nineveh repented, and the Gentiles of the first century, they too are going to be repenting where Jews stand and scoff and mock Jesus. The sign of Jonah includes death and resurrection, it includes the nation's Repenting 
The sign of Jonah is ultimately a sign of salvation. Jonah represents Israel as a whole, and as an Israelite, he was cast into the sea, and the sea is a symbol, an image of the Gentile nations. And so Jonah is cast into the sea and then exiled out, but then out from the grave he comes back and is vomited onto the land and being restored from the sea of the nations, restored from exile. The story of Jonah is much more than just being swallowed by a fish. Something even greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was an unwilling servant, but Jesus Christ is the willing Savior. Jonah ran away from sinners to save his life. Jesus Christ ran toward sinners at the very cost of his life. Jonah was a prophet who could only warn the people of Nineveh to repent and flee from the wrath to come. Jesus Christ is the substitute who took on the full weight of God's wrath so that repentance could be possible. Jonah was filled with hatred toward his enemies and love toward his people, so much so that he did not want to go, but God still used him to bring hope and salvation to a foolish nation. Jesus Christ, filled with great love for his enemies, was precisely because of that love that God used him to bring hope and salvation to the whole world. Jonah had anger. He wanted to die. That's how the story ends. So many children's books, by the way, do a horrible job at the story of Jonah. Like, really bad. How do you do the story of Jonah and not include chapter 4? Like, that's how the whole book ends. It leaves you with this cliffhanger. He's like, oh, I just want to curse, curse me, God. I just want to die. The end. I mean, I know why they don't put it in the children's stories, but like, you're missing the point of the book. Jonah's great anger led him to want to die because he could not see God's mercy being spread to the nations and not to the people of Israel. But because of Jesus' great love, he wanted to die so that he could spread God's mercy to all peoples and all nations. Jonah was close to death, but he stayed alive three days and came out on the third day and did the work God called him to do. Jesus was not just close to death. Jesus died. He was buried in the grave for three days and came out on the third day. And he had finished all the work God called him to do. Behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. And this story is begging of us. Are you in? Who's in? The scribes and Pharisees are not in. The people of Nineveh are in. The people of Nineveh. Imagine the slap in the face as they hear this. They repented, therefore they will stand at the judgment, and you will be judged. They're in, and you're out. That's point one, and that's the longest one, by the way. These other three are much shorter, just as a heads up. There's a lot of content there. Point two, who's in? Those who listen. Those who listen. Look at verse 42. Jesus continues the thought of someone being greater. And he says in verse 42 about this woman, this queen of the south. She will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You all need to know that King Solomon gained an international reputation due to his great wise organization of his kingdom, the wealth and success the seven wonders of the world. One of them is one of Solomon's gardens and 
the temple and all this stuff that he built and made Solomon is, is a big, big deal. But the, the great example of a non-Jewish Gentile person who has interest in King Solomon is Queen Sheba. And so she comes and asks Solomon questions. You might remember from the scripture reading earlier in the service, she asks hard questions. She asks hard questions, but she listens. She comes as a skeptic because she did not believe. Read the story again in 1 Kings chapter 10. She didn't believe all the reports. There's no way that he could be this great. I need to see this for myself. So she takes a trip and she travels a long distance. And she goes to see Solomon and Solomon wipes off the floor every expectation that she had and just doubles it and says, whoa, it's far greater. It's far better than I even thought. What was told to me wasn't even the half of it. So this is why Jesus brings up this question. There she was, confused and wondering whether or not Solomon was great and he was far, far greater. And so Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was wise, no doubt. Very wise man. Wisest man on all the earth. But Jesus is himself wisdom from heaven. Wisdom incarnate. And though he is the greater Solomon, the scribes and Pharisees are not in. They are not responding. Sheba traveled across the whole world to see Solomon's wisdom. Jesus comes directly to them and asks them, are you in? And they say no. They refuse to hear his wisdom and they want to kill him. Instead of confessing him as the wisdom of God, Sheba is in, and the Pharisees are out. So put these two together. You got Nineveh, and you got Sheba. That's what brings these two stories together. They're both outsiders. They're both non-Jewish people. They're in, and Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, the Jewish people who are ethnically Israel's, Israelites, they're out. God is taking in outsiders from all over the world and making these people insiders. Non-Jews are becoming into the family of God. And outsiders are people who were born ethnically into the family. In other words, shame on you for not responding when you see the greater Jonah and the greater Solomon. Which begs the question to you and me. Will you reject the wisdom of God incarnate? Point three, who's in? Those who repent, those who listen to the wisdom of God. Three, those who are filled. Filled with what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is where we start thinking about haunted houses and scary ghosts, and we're like, what in the world's going on here? But trust me, I think this makes more sense than what it appears on the surface. Verses 43 to 45, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Catch that last two words. Evil generation. That's how you know this story is connected to the previous story. He's still talking about the evil generation. The people of people who would see signs and wonders. By the way, the other time evil generation is used on its own is in the story of Numbers. When the people of Israel see all the signs and wonders God does. 
So this could be like a double echo to both Hosea and also the story of those in the wilderness generation. The generation of people that saw Moses split the Red Sea. Saw ten plagues on Egypt. Saw manna fall from heaven. Saw water flowing out of a rock. If you had seen these signs, you'd think you wouldn't grumble and be like, where's God at? But that's exactly what they do. What an evil generation they're called. So, this reference to evil generation shows that Jesus is still talking about people in this context of rejecting and accepting who's in and who's out. And this time, I think he's using a parable. Now, some people, now you can agree to disagree. This is not one of those things that we need to like all agree upon in order to be Christians and members of this church. But I don't think this text is about, here's some tips for how to do exorcisms. Now, make sure you do it real good, because if you don't, then all of a sudden, a whole bunch are going to come back afterwards. It could be. could be. But I think what's going on here has more to do with the story of Hanukkah. Oh yes, Hanukkah. Do you guys know the story of Hanukkah? Why do Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah? How come you never read about Hanukkah in the Old Testament? Because Hanukkah started in between the Old and New Testament during the book of Maccabees that's written about the intertestament period. So Malachi is the last prophet that we think spoke. And then in between that time, you've got 400 years of silence. During that 400 years of silence, Daniel chapter 8 comes true. We just went through Daniel, so you might remember. Daniel 8 said that the temple of God would be profaned by the Greeks. And sure enough, the Greeks come in, and they take out all of the people that are there, the Persians, and then we find that they go into the temple, and they slaughter pigs. In the temple. Sacrifice pigs. If you're Jewish, pigs are unclean. That, that's like, oh no you didn't. That's like, don't, don't slaughter pigs in the temple. So a bunch of Jewish people got really angry and upset. And they decided, we're going to take them out. And they took them out. And so that's called the Maccabean Revolt. You can read about it in First and Second Maccabees. And so, then when they got the temple back, there was like this miraculous candle that had these lights and anyway that's why they light the candles and Hanukkah and we don't need to talk about that per se but what you need to know is that there was a cleansing of the temple by overthrowing with military might by Jewish people so picture this as an illustration the temple is God's house it was cleaned up it was tidy right now during the days of Jesus Herod is building a more beautiful and excellent temple. It's it's gorgeous. It's clean and tidy. But there's nothing in it. God's spirit does not dwell in that temple because God's spirit dwells in Jesus. The true temple. And I get that language, by the way, from earlier in chapter 12. If you remember back in chapter 12, Jesus is talking about the people that are picking, when he's questioned about picking grain in the field. And then he says, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means. Anyway, verse 6 of chapter 12, if you want to look back. So I think Jesus sees himself as the new and better temple. And he's saying, if you would like to really clean out God's house. And make sure that further destruction doesn't come back in. And seven times worse. Seven, by the way, is that number of perfection. Of like, this is going to be bad evil that comes. 
You thought the Greek coming in and profaning God's temple was bad? Wait till the Romans come and just obliterate the temple in this next generation. That's exactly what happens, by the way. Jesus is warning, he is telling them that you need to see me as the true temple. You need to come to me, and if you do, then you won't be with all the other Jews who are trying to put all their focus on the actual physical temple. So I think this is a very helpful illustration for us, because as we know, Jesus is the ultimate temple. The church then is the ultimate uh, body of Christ on the earth now. As Jesus ascended to heaven, he poured out his spirit, and his spirit fills human beings. And so whether you think about it from an individual sense or a corporate sense, use this little teaching here from Jesus to ask the question, who's in you, Embassy Church? Or you individually? If you're not a member of this church, welcome. Who's in you? Are you all cleaned up on the outside? Everything look good? Everything clean and tidy. You got a good job, a good family. Church, churches have nice buildings, nice websites, great music, great programs. But their temple is empty. That's the con- condemning word from Jesus. You have a temple. You have a person. You have the spirit that has been cast out. The evil is out. But it's empty. It's got nothing inside. And so Jesus is asking, who's in? Who's in you. If I may put it this way, more than ever, if we're going to invite people to our church in this coming Easter season, and we're going to intentionally try and be a church that reaches out to people, what are we inviting them into? Have you ever heard the phrase, what you win them with is what you keep them with? Are we inviting them into the community of, hey, we're all the good looking people, or we're all a certain ethnic group, or we're the people that like men, or we like women, or we like this or that? Or are we a kind of church that says, what we want you to see is God? Who's in you? The only way that the seven spirits won't come back is if the Spirit of God remains upon you. If the Spirit of God is in us, more than ever, we need God's Spirit in Embassy Church. We need 1 Corinthians 14 when it says a non-believer walks into the midst of the church gathering and says, God must be in this place. A.W. Tozer, some of you might remember this quote. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, it might seem that 95% of what the church does would continue to go on and nobody would know the difference. But it seems like the Holy Spirit, if it were drawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the temple, the house, the, the presence of God in us and collectively as a church is God's Spirit? Therefore, we could be well fit and exercised, have our makeup on, be well dressed, have a good moral life. I'm all cleaned up. No demons inside of me. But you're empty inside and God's spirit is not in you. That will come crashing down just like the temple did in AD 70. It will not last. The final state will be far worse. Who's in you? Who's in us, Embassy Church? Fourth and final point. Who's in Those who do God's will. This is really the story that started getting me thinking about this image of who's in and who's out. Because look at the way this story reads. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. Not inside. 
And they were asking to speak to Jesus. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my brother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who's in? According to this text, it's those who are doing the will of the Father. Notice the way that the text says that they were outside. That there was a group of people who were inside, close to Jesus. Now, I don't think we should overstate this case, but Mark chapter 3, verse 21, states that in the similar parallel account of this story, some of Jesus' family members thought he was crazy, like he was a madman. It might seem to suggest here in Matthew's Gospel that up until this point, the only interactions we have seen about Jesus' family members first begin here with a sense of, yeah, I'm not so sure about him. Now, it doesn't mean that that ended that way, and I think that the story continues to tell us that some people came to faith in Jesus. Say, for example, have you ever heard of the book of James in the New Testament? It seems like James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. Therefore, that whole idea that the Catholic Church teaches that Mary remained perpetually a virgin for her whole life, it's like, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious as to how they get that one. Like, Jesus has a mother and brothers and sisters, like, biologically. James is a half-brother. And the idea that we should see Mary as somehow greater than everybody else on the earth, other than Jesus, like Jesus, and then like Mary's kind of just a step notch below, like, no, 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 Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm going to keep doing my teaching here. I mean, I just started to imagine myself in this situation. Imagine I'm preaching this sermon right now, and then somebody like kind of walks up, and everybody's looking at him, and they're like wondering, and they come up on stage, and they kind of tap me on the shoulder, and like, hey, your mom's back there, and she, she needs to talk to you. Like, I'd be a little like, I probably should talk to her if it's that serious that you came up and like interrupted the sermon. Like, that's what's going on here. Jesus is teaching. Like, hey, your mom and then the rest of your family. They need to talk to you about something. No, this is my family. In fact, the language here is that he stretches out his hand, not just points, but he stretches out his hand. And it makes you think that it's his, he's kind of doing a priestly blessing to say, no, no this is my family. These that are right here sitting at my feet because that's often the position of somebody learning from a rabbi. They're, They're close to him. They're with Jesus. They're doing the will of the Father by listening to the Son. You know, sometimes doing the will of the Father is many times doing very little at all. But just listening. Being quiet. Praying and hearing Jesus speak to you through his word. Oftentimes, I've tried to summarize discipleship in a nutshell like this. Be with Jesus. Be like Jesus. Those who are with Jesus and are like him and doing the Father's will, they are the true children and family of God. Obedience to the Father through the Son runs thicker than the very blood in your veins. Just imagine for a moment that you can be closer to Jesus than his own biological mother. That in and of itself should be startling. And we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of thinking about Jewish culture and the loyalty you give to your mom and dad. That only deepens that reality. That you could be closer to Jesus 
than his own biological mother simply by believing and trusting and repenting. Your faith and your obedience, your repentance makes you a child of God. I'm no longer a slave. I am a child of God. Whoever does the will of my Father, this is my family. The very nature of the gospel is this word, whoever. Sinners, whoever. Enemies, whoever does the will of the Father. How about strangers or foreigners, immigrants, refugees, people from different nationalities and ethnic groups? Whoever. How about men or women, children, single or married? Whoever does the will of my Father. It's a whoever. The very nature of the gospel is whoever. If you're poor or you're rich, no matter how you see yourself, no matter how the world sees you, whether you identify a certain way, whether you come from the LGBT community, whoever. Embassy Church, do you have a whoever mindset for who should come in and be challenged and encouraged and pleaded with to do the will of the Father? Or are there some people who are like, no, 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 not them. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is the whoever, and one of the ugly things about the gospel is when the church does not embrace it. And the church then starts to look like, no, whoever means a certain segment of people I like. We must get it into our thick heads. There will always be people that will make you feel a little uncomfortable if it's whoever. There will always be somebody. They might be Republican. They might be Democrat. They might be from that side of the neighborhood or that side. And they may be somebody that you personally don't like. But the church is a family with God as our Father. It's not an event. It's not something that we just attend. It's a whoever. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. So let's turn these questions again one more time. Not just who's in. Are you in? Are you repentant? Are you listening to the wisdom of God? Are you filled with God's spirit? And are you doing the will of the Father? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the call that whosoever believes in the Son of God will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes. We thank you, God, that you so loved the world that you gave your Son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins, to die in our place, to be a greater Jonah, a greater Solomon, a greater temple. And the greater brother. We thank you for all that Christ has done to make a way for us. Strangers, outsiders, exiles, aliens, foreigners. People who have no right to say that God is our father and Jesus is our brother. But you have made a way. We thank you God. This is good news. This is good news for each one of us. This is good news for the nations. This is good news for all of those in our community. And I pray God. 
That as we look out at our community, you would crush the idols of ethnic and idolatrous spirits that judge and condemn and have prejudices in our hearts towards certain groups of people. But instead, we'd have the spirit and heart of God and Jesus. God, would you pour out that spirit upon this house of God, Embassy Church, that we would be not just by name an embassy of all nations, but we would be the embassy of heaven that says, whoever comes to do the will of the Father, repentantly, humbly listening and receiving your spirit, they can be child of God. We pray, God, that over the next few weeks, as Easter season comes upon us, we would have a heart of invitation, a heart of whoever, and we would be open to who you'd have us to invite, to ask, to reach out to. We pray this all in Jesus' name.